Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Speaking at the second annual John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art, held on March 23, 2018, at the National Gallery of Art, Karen Lemmy draws together the two replicas of the Greek slave commissioned by William Humble Ward, one completed in 1846 and preserved in the Corcoran Collection at the National Gallery of Art, the other completed in 1848 and lost since the early 20th century. Sculptor Hiram Powers cleverly satisfied Lord Ward's insistent demands for a unique version of the famed composition, revealing his ability simultaneously to entice and manage his patrons' desires. The John Wilmerding Symposium on American Art is made possible by a grant from the Walton Family Foundation. At first glance, this daguerreotype of Hiram Powers' Greek slave may seem unremarkable. The plate is permanently scarred by scratches and fingerprints. For a brief time, the object was erroneously cataloged as, quote, a black leather case with a mirror interior and almost lost to history. Yet this daguerreotype offers something new to a composition that has become so familiar. The image of the sculpture, shown as it would in a daguerreotype, in mirror reverse, reveals remarkable anomalies compared to the statue as we have come to know it. Specifically, and I'll return to these details, the clasp on the chain, the arrangement of the drapery, and the apparent omission of that Phrygian cap. I've made the case in a longer essay that this is not just another reproduction, but the only known image of the lost version of the Greek slave, completed in the fall of 1848 for William Humble Ward, and missing since before World War II. Here you see the daguerreotype flipped, so that the orientation corresponds to the sculpture. The lost Greek slave was widely seen by visitors to Whitley Court, Lord Ward's lavish English estate, which boasted a large collection of sculptures, including some by Torvaldsen and Canova. Thousands more saw Ward's Greek slave at the art treasures of the United Kingdom in Manchester, 1857. Here's another view of that exhibition. It's hard to know how and when this sculpture slipped from the public, very public eye, and was lost. Some claim it was destroyed in a fire at Whitley Court in September 1937. Others say it was bombed in World War II. Maybe William Humble Ward's son moved it to Himley Hall, where he resided after selling Whitley Court in 1920. In any case, the disappearance and possible destruction of Lord Ward's Greek slave only adds to the mystery of the sculpture in this daguerreotype. Echoing what Tess said, perhaps it's the intimacy of looking at the daguerreotype, rocking it by hand until the image reveals itself, or recognizing that Lord Ward's version was the most idiosyncratic of the six life-size marble replicas Powers produced. In any case, 
the rediscovery of the lost Greek slave in the daguerreotype prompted me to think about this sculpture as a personal object in a private collection rather than take it for granted as a famed artwork of international venues, an artwork that has been distilled into an icon. As Martina Droth noted in her brilliant digital mapping of the six Greek slaves, each one except for the last was made to order for a specific client. Quote, these clients were all male, wealthy, prominent members of society, end quote. Each replica, therefore, is a personalized object of desire, embodying the tastes and preferences of an individual patron that, in the context of this panel, underscores the primacy of the body. After all, it is a life-size nude. This paper considers the individual agency, powers allotted to his clients, especially Lord Ward, who in fact commissioned two examples of the Greek slave. Prior to number four, the one in the daguerreotype, Lord Ward, as we have heard, commissioned number two, which he released and which following a circuitous turn of events, William Corcoran purchased in 1851. That, of course, is the example in the National Gallery of Art. And it's ironic that we sometimes refer to it as the Corcoran Greek slave, when in fact Lord Ward played an enormous role in determining its appearance. Because Lord Ward had a hand in two of the six Greek slaves, his voice among Powers patrons is more audible, his agency more evident. Unlike painting, Creating a marble sculpture requires many hands, expensive materials, and a very long production time. The iterative nature of carving a marble from a preliminary model offers unique opportunities for patrons to become involved in the execution of the sculpture. The Greek slave followed much the same arc of production as most 19th century sculpture. Powers started in the studio with a full-scale clay model. He hired professional mold makers to construct a plaster mold and cast a solid plaster that became the matrix for the replication of the composition in marble, which was done by professional carvers working under Powers' supervision. Unlike portrait commissions, which are usually initiated by a patron, and which dominated Power's early career, ideal figures carried exceptional financial risk for the artist because they required him to work on spec, investing time and resources to complete the model without knowing if it would ever attract a patron. Powers tried to interest prospective clients early on in the process since securing an advance sale provided him with the means to pay those laborers and purchase the expensive block of marble. This scenario, however, potentially gave patrons considerable power over the final ideal composition. Indeed, in the absence of a patron, a plaster model could languish in the studio for years. But Powers, as we see, was an astute businessman and managed his clients exquisitely. 
His studio in a charming 15th century palazzo in Florence was equal parts workshop and salesroom. You see him here, tool in hand, as he works on the ideal composition titled America, while chatting up two prospective clients, no doubt on the grand tour. The Greek slave, you'll notice, is off to the left. Powers capitalized on key moments in production to entice clients to personalize in limited ways the version of the Greek slave he hoped to possess, indulging their demands and expectations without compromising the integrity of his work or the efficiency of his operations. By working Simultaneously on multiple ideal compositions, he hedged his bets and maximized studio production, staging his work to begin a new clay model while the carvers were rendering other designs in stone. And when possible, Powers secured multiple overlapping commissions for a single composition, which is exactly what happened with his Greek slave. Powers began, quote, putting up the clay for the Creek slave in October 1842. And four months later, he declared he was halfway through the modeling. He finished modeling in March 1843 and hired a team of formatory, professional mold makers who took nine days to build the plaster form around the finished clay, capturing a negative impression of it. And I'm showing you that process, generally speaking, not with the Greek slave, but the mold being built around the clay. Francesco Caradori's 1802 guide offers a period perspective on the technique. The formatori created a piece mold of many sections that fit together around the contours of the figure to accommodate undercuts of negative space. The edges of these sections, and I'm indicating one edge with that arrow, fit together with a tongue and groove system, locking the whole ensemble into a three-dimensional puzzle. Once the plaster mold had dried, the sections were opened along the partition lines and the clay removed and discarded. This, of course, is an open mold. The mold was cleaned and treated with a separating agent such as lard or graphite, and finally reassembled. So picture, for this brief moment, the Greek slave existing only as a negative impression, an intangible void encapsulated within the hollow plaster mold. The formatory used the mold to create a solid plaster positive. Seam lines on the cast were filed away, revealing a perfect replica of the clay original. And here you can see quite clearly plaster seam lines on an example of the Greek slave. The reinforced plaster was stronger and more durable than the clay and could better withstand the wear and tear of the replication process. The plaster cast in turn became the template for replication of the sculpture in marble. Powers used this plaster cast in the collection of Smithsonian American Art Museum, SAM, to execute the first five examples of his Greek slave. We know this because it is covered in telltale marks, pencil marks and metal pins, so-called point marks. 
Power Studio assistants use these marks in tandem with a pointing machine, a mechanical device to systematically replicate the sculpture. The pointing machine, largely unchanged today, consists of three slender metal rods that are connected with fully articulated joints. And this device is fixed onto a stationary crossbar that locks alternatively on the plaster model and then on the marble. The master carver takes a reading by aligning the tip of the pointing rod with one of these many reference points on the plaster. The whole apparatus, crossbar, pointing machine, is then moved and locked onto the marble. The measurement is transferred to the corresponding location on the stone. And this pointing machine has moved back, to, back and forth countless, hundreds really, of times from the plaster to the marble, guiding the carver to remove just the right amount of marble. And I just want to point out the metal loop that's protruding from the top of the right temple of the Greek slave that served as this pointing model for the full-scale sculpture. This is where the very long crossbar of the machine hooked on. Now, you can see how labor-intensive all this was. The sculptor really could only turn a profit if he sold multiple replicas. And indeed, carvers used the machine to create well over 100 replicas of the bust of the Greek slave. And it's very exciting uh, from a technical point to see this plaster that's in Sam's collection side by side with um, a Corcoran Collection National Gallery example of a partially carved Greek slave bust. I'm, the arrows indicate the one-to-one -one relationship of point marks uh, on the unfinished carved, the unfinished marble. Powers, however, restricted the addition of the full-scale version to just six. Each one is a masterpiece, each one custom-made to order. The machine significantly sped up replication, but this device had limitations. It was most useful in measuring the high and low contrapoints on the model, as the carver shaped the overall form in marble. But the skin of the finished sculpture, with its various textures and details, was necessarily rendered by hand. And this is best seen on another unfinished work by Powers, his bust Ginevra. Notice, of course, the sharp geometric angle on her nose and the divots left by the tip of the drill bit, all awaiting hand carving and polishing. Since carvers could not use the pointing machine to replicate these kinds of intricate surface details, powers didn't bother to model them in the clay, and they don't appear in the plaster. He took some shortcuts as well, and I'm showing you here a close-up of the plaster pointing model, and on the right you see the example of the Greek slave in the National Gallery's collection. He took shortcuts by pressing a chain link into the clay to mark the line of the delicate cable that holds the cross and locket, those important, oh, excuse me, important symbols. Uh, you could just kind of make it out here. The chain, which is so beautifully carved, is really uh, just pressed into the clay and then registered in the plaster. 
And actually, the whole column, which is draped with a richly brocaded and fringed fabric, lacks surface detail altogether. These sections that are so carefully rendered in the marble are less about form than texture. And those carvers were much better off looking at actual examples of fabric, crosses, etc. Similarly, to guide the carvers in rendering the chains in, the mar in marble, Powers simply attached real metal cuffs and chains to the plaster model, as evidenced by the indentations left on the wrists and abrasions on the thighs of that plaster model. The absence of these details from the plaster indicate the extent to which Powers continued to develop his composition as he moved from one medium to another. In fact, it seems he didn't even finalize the arrangement of the chains until April 1844, by which time the first marble replica was underway. At this very late date, Powers drew a minuscule sketch in his studio memorandum notebook noting with uncertainty, the chains might be made thus. And I thought that was um, really, really extreme to be so far along in the carving and not yet know how to make those chains. You can see how tiny this sketch is. Um, I added a pencil just to give you a sense of scale. This degree of isolated non finito, unfinished, may have proved useful, however, in selling the composition to potential patrons. Throughout the making of The Greek Slave, Powers delicately balanced secrecy and publicity, at times veiling the unfinished sculpture in his studio, as we see here, to shield it from curious visitors, while simultaneously describing it in great detail in letters to potential clients. This tactic not only raised expectations by literally enshrouding his new sculpture in mystery, it set the ideal circumstances for visiting patrons to participate in the completion of the work. In the first two weeks of December 1843, Captain John Grant, Lord Ward, and Prince Demidoff separately visited Powers Studio. Each one admired the plaster model alongside the marble block that's partially carved at this point. In time, each one of these men would commission a full-scale marble. Significantly, each one pleaded with Powers for a unique version. In January 1844, Captain Grant became the first to place an order. Powers noted, quote, Grant concluded an arrangement. I am to have the statue finished in about eight months' time. And then in September that year, just as Powers was finishing Grant's sculpture, Lord Ward placed his order for example two, the one that's now in the National Gallery. Powers again recorded in his studio memorandum, Ward desires the support to be changed a little in the drapery, more careless. I must write to him and enclose the design of this alteration. He spoke of the mouth of the slave, Liked that one in the model best, but finally I said, I must make the duplicate all the same except the drapery. Indeed, Powers satisfied Ward by omitting one twist of the fabric around the supporting column, as we see here. 
Soon after, in, October, in November 1844, Captain Grant wrote to Powers saying he regretted that he hadn't restricted the edition. Quote, so Lord W has ordered a duplicate. I confess I should be better pleased if he had ordered some other subject and allowed the slave to stand alone. Grant asserted, alteration should be made in any copy in order to distinguish the original. He might as well have said my original. It will afford me infinite pleasure if you can manage to omit the chains, or if not omit them, to substitute some kind of cord. I now wish you to inscribe, but not in a conspicuous place, executed to the order of John Grant Esquire. Powers indulged the personalized inscription, which associates this marble seen on the left in perpetuity with Captain Grant, even after his patron had to sell the sculpture in 1859 due to financial setbacks. I will not delve into example three, except to say it was commissioned in 1845 by an Irish aristocrat, Sir Charles Coote, who put, pulled out of the contract in 1847 following his own financial reversals um, subsequent to the potato famine in Ireland. What is critical for us to note, however, is in the absence or the removal of a patron, Powers reverted back to his original design. So number three looks very much like number one. In 1848, Lord Ward re-entered the picture, and Powers at last fulfilled his order for a personal replica, once again complying with Ward's insistence on a unique version. Shortly after completing the sculpture, the fourth version, Powers wrote, quote, the arrangement of the drapery made at your request has been greatly admired, and I like it myself quite as well as the other. The difference is visible in the folds of the fabric that cascade down the vertical support, especially at the outer edge, which you see with the arrow, near the figure's lower calf. In this passage, the scalloped edge forms a distinctive triangle that overhangs to create a pocket of deeply shadowed space. Also distinctive is the double clasp where the chains and the manacle on the figure meet at, the, at her right wrist. No other example of the sculpture has such a large, finely rendered clasp. One slender chain link is so fine that it appears to slip over and nearly encircle the figure's thumb, all a testament to the bravura carving of Lord Ward's marble. But what really shocked me was the apparent absence of the Phrygian or Grecian cap. This element so important to Power's narrative about freedom and bondage is quite prominent in all the other examples, and its omission from this fourth replica is a major departure from the sculpture as we know it. Powers was reluctant to repeat Lord Ward's eccentric requests in the next example, version five, completed in 1851 for Prince Demidoff. While working out the terms of that commission, Powers wrote to the prince as if to steer him back to the original model, quote, the changes made at the request of Lord Ward have enlarged necessarily the support, thereby encumbering the view of the statue. 
The workmanship on the original, meaning the first example, is much the most elaborate and, the extensive, and extensive in the Grecian cap at the top of the support and the embroidered sleeve at the outside, both left out in the one for Lord Ward. For his part, Prince Demidoff ensured the uniqueness of his replica by ordering from Powers an elaborate bell-shaped marble pedestal. All these variations underscore how the pointed plaster was a prototype and the execution of each marble realized the design in a new way. Each patron was granted the satisfaction of believing he had been an agent for change, commissioning a unique marble. In reality, Powers only conceded minor deviations from his master matrix, and he restricted these variations across the marbles to the area that appeared most unfinished on the plaster. Although Powers intensely negotiated sales with these patrons who demanded distinctive replicas, the modifications probably cost the artist nothing. The whole addition of the Greek slave, therefore, can be seen as a series of compromises reflecting careful concessions powers made to accommodate individual taste. Significantly, powers maintained exclusive control over that idealized body, despite, as we heard, Lord Ward's request to modify the mouth on version two. Imagine what a pastiche the Greek slave could have become if Powers had allowed each patron to manipulate the body according to his personal predilections. The body was Powers alone to compose, but it seems quite possible that the idealized body was itself a composite of what Powers found to be ideal in several living models. Evidence for this came from a life cast found in Powers' studio showing a woman's left forearm and hand. It is the same size and holds the same gesture as the corresponding section on the Greek slave. Deviation analysis comparing 3D digital scans of the body cast and the plaster model reveal minimal discrepancies, which strongly suggests to me that Powers may have incorporated body casts directly into the Greek slave. And I just point out that the colors blue, green, and yellow are a close match, uh, areas where the two objects closely matched, blue a, a, a near perfect match. The idea of a menu of favored body parts, modeled or cast, is reinforced by a discovery made by Caitlin Beach, presently a fellow at CASVA and formerly a fellow at SAM. During her year at SAM, Caitlin combed through notebooks of Minor Kellogg, whom we've heard was Power's friend and agent. In these notes, Kellogg wrote the names and addresses and attributes of his preferred models in Florence. And I've highlighted some in red. I'll call out good skin and color, rather fleshy. Her sister, good, large form, Eastern or African face. Excellent legs. One begins to wonder, if we put them all together, would we come up with the Greek slave? It's too bad the B2 movement didn't get started in the 19th century. <laughs> 
In closing, I wish to ask you to see the Greek slave through power's eyes as something sectional that could be modified to accommodate his most insistent patrons, above all, Lord Ward. But now, I also want to remind us that fundamentally it is a sculpture about the body, and at that, very likely a hybrid of the real and the ideal. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.